Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Rev Them Rule of Law podcast. My name is Oliver Garner. Our guests today are John Marine and Alberto Alamano, who will be discussing their recent proposals for Hungary's presidency of the Council of the European Union to be suspended. John Marine is the Chair in Law and Politics and International Relations and Assistant Professor of European Human Rights Law at the University of Groningen. He's also a Commissioner of the Netherlands Institute for Human Rights and a mentor in the Our Rule of Law Academy. Alberto Alamano is John Monet Professor of European Union Law at HEC Paris and a permanent visiting professor at the College of Europe and the founder of The Good Lobby. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. For our first question, could you summarise the Myers Committee's proposals to safeguard the Council's functioning from the upcoming Hungarian presidency that's recently received support from the European Parliament? Yes, so... Uh, um... Well, the Mice Committee, first of all, is a uh, is a Dutch NGO that consists of uh, uh, judges, uh, academics, attorneys, and uh, our mission for the last twenty five years or so is uh, simply to bring uh, uh, a debate on how the law stands and how it is being interpreted uh, into the into the policy domain. Uh, and for this proposal, what we are looking at is simply if you are as a member state to to uh, to take up the, uh, the presidency of the council, there's all sorts of internal guidelines on how the, the council uh, uh, has decided this should be taken up. You have to be an honest broker. Uh, um, you have to make sure, uh, as the presidency uh, uh, handbook of the, the council secretariat says, you sort of behave like uh, the, uh, the the person throwing a dinner party and having all sorts of uh, all the different strands of the family around uh, the room and uh, still make sure that uh, no glass work is broken. And we're basically uh, questioning uh, whether um, a member state uh, that, and, and we're talking about Hungary in the first place, but also Poland, uh, would, which would succeed it uh, according to the current rotation, whether a member state that according to that council itself uh, is worthy of an Article 7 procedure and according to that council itself is worthy of having billions and billions of uh, uh, euros uh, suspended, is at all uh, capable as a matter of good governance that's really the angle uh, uh, to uh, to to uh, to take up that role and whether you can be an honest broker if uh, uh, you know you're uh, you very much have a very specific interest in uh, in in a way that cross cuts all of these files so that's the general context uh, and and then we simply started looking at the law as we do with uh, the Mice Committee. Uh, you know, we're not starting with an answer; we're starting with a, with an uh, analysis. Mm-hmm. And we found out that in fact this is a very curious file, where it's very one of the very very few uh, files in the EU setting where the European Council is the, actually the legislator. Uh, the 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 treaty lays down that the European Council should uh, come up with the decision on how the presidency is uh, put into practice. So there's a European Council decision of 2009 that says, in fact, there's an obligation on a trio of presidencies. It's basically always a a, a good geographical mix and a mix between big and small. and and the 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 presidency the the, the trio presidency that we're uh, talking about here is uh, Spain, Belgium, Hungary, as well as Poland, Denmark, and Cyprus. So the obligation is on that trio for 18 months to make things uh, run smoothly, and each of the three partners in that trio will then have um, uh, uh, have a sort of a six-month rotation. So this um, was eventually also, uh, uh, you know, 
um, further elaborated in a council decision that is based on the European Council decision that actually lays down the rotational uh, schedule. So if you just look at uh, what is actually possible in that uh, current framework, uh, uh, we're uh, uh, su suggesting, and these are the two first suggestions of the, of the MICE committee's proposal, that first of all, it should really be up to the trio itself to try and figure out uh, whether something can be done within that trio to ensure that the thing that uh, the three of them are co-responsible for can uh, can uh, avoid running into trouble from an honest broker kind of uh, perspective. Uh, so the first option, which doesn't require any changes in, in the law, is simply for Spain and Belgium uh, to have an uncomfortable sit uh, conversation with Hungary. Uh, that uh, uh, since we're also responsible uh, as Spain and Belgium for this uh, period, perhaps uh, we should uh, uh, we should have a talk about who chairs what. If that doesn't lead anything, also within the current setting, the council uh, decision, which lays down this rotational schedule, in fact, has also been uh, adapted uh, quite a number of times. There's nothing unusual about that. Uh, and, and that can even be done at short notice. For example, during uh, just a day or two after the Brexit uh, referendum, the UK announced that it was not going to take up the presidency, that it was due to take up uh, within 11 months. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the, the only difference uh, in that current situation, uh, in, in, in that uh, situation from the current situation, is that the initiative has so far always been, and there's a couple of other presidents, with the, the, the member state that is actually uh, due to take up the presidency. Uh, and the third option is really to, uh, uh, if, if this doesn't really lead to anything, uh, it's basically to uh, look at uh, the, the secondary legislation itself, which in this case is this combination of the European Council decision and the Council decision. There you could explicate uh, that uh, Article 7 procedures and budgetary conditionality are uh, uh, so fundamental uh, to, uh, to uh, the possibility of good governance and conflict of interest and also being a credible partner towards uh, uh, co-legislators, the European Parliament, but also uh, a credible partner to the Commission and just externally and all, even for the for the credibility of uh, the EU as a whole, that uh, if uh, uh, if you're still in Article 7 territory and the budgetary conditionality thing is not solved, in fact, you should first solve that before you uh, take up um, that, uh, uh, that role. And the important thing here, Oliver, is that the treaty itself says that the European Council only needs a two-third majority, which is much lower than the threshold that we're used to in Article 7, which is a four-fifth uh, even for the first step. So these are the three proposals. The first are just within the current framework, and the third is that, uh, that you could, on a two-third uh, majority within the European Council, uh, change the law to clarify that something um, and that something uh, uh, has, has to change from the perspective of good governance uh, and from the perspective of uh, yeah, ensuring in the general interest of the European Union that uh, file, uh, that files that are in the pipeline are, are dealt with credibly. Thank you so much for that summary. And you discussed the, the legal basis of the move there of the European Council's decisions and Council decisions. Do you think that such a decision to suspend Hungarian's Hungary's presidency in some way could be vulnerable to legal challenges in the same way that Hungary challenged the budget conditionality regulation. And maybe we could. Oh, I, 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 I'm, I, I have zero uh, percent doubt that, that there's a hundred percent chance that this would be challenged in court. Uh, but 
Uh, and there, the, the same European Court of Justice ruling uh, uh, on the conditionality regulation clarified that Article 7 is not a one-stop shop for rule of law kind of things. Uh, I mean, the, the budgetary conditionality uh, judgment, in fact, says that uh, and it, it, it implicitly states that the Court of Justice welcomes explication of all the Article 2 values. Uh, and therefore, there's really no reason that uh, uh, where the, the, the conditionality regulation took the line of sound financial management, you could have a good governance kind of line uh, saying that uh, as long as you have these uh, problems that uh, actually lead to majority decision making in the council to have very far reaching uh, consequences. Uh, it's simply uh, not that credible that you will be able to to, to fulfill your role in uh, as as owners broker, uh, and, and we're not uh, taking it away from you. We're just suspending it, just like we're not taking away any money. We're just suspending that you get access uh, to it. So it's a it's a, a, a it's a, a way to pressure it. So I'm also ninety five percent sure uh, that it would survive that challenge in court order. <laughs> Alberto. Well, I also suspect that this uh, decision or any possible decision that might question the Hungarian presidency and perhaps in the future, the Polish presidency of any other country uh, in the future might trigger um, some legal actions. I think it's part of the nature of things when it comes to the attempt of the European Union to tame rebellious countries. I think what we have been learning over the past few days is that the toolbox the European Union has at its disposal is much larger than what we originally thought. Uh, there are probably even more possibilities for the European leaders to exercise pressure for the European institutions to uh, flag some uh, clear red warnings uh, to a country like Hungary. And it would be a pity uh, to be uh, just too narrow-minded when it comes to thinking, envisaging the possibility for European leaders to take su such action. I think we have been normalizing uh, the fact of having rebellious countries in the daily operation of the Union, but when they come on top because of a rotating presidency, I think this normalization can no longer stand. Uh, we need to hear more voices, as we heard in the past few days, coming from few European uh, countries, leading countries, being Germany, being the Netherlands, saying, this is a great opportunity to send a strong signal um, and this might show willingness of the very same countries to accept possible legal actions questioning their decision to actually raise such such a red flag so um i wouldn't be um too i would say ideological on this and saying this is just an attempt at exercising further pressure but this is part of the normal regular exchange existing among European countries who originally decided to abide by certain rules. And if the rules of the game are no longer uh, satisfied or supported, I think it's legitimate for any other country who is uh, abiding by those rules uh, to actually uh, scream loud and say, we have a problem here. We don't feel comfortable in having the Hungarian uh, government running the European Union formally uh, when it comes to the Council of the European Union. You mentioned, Alberto, this proposal as part of the toolbox to tackle backsliding on value. So is the purpose of the proposal defensive in order to safeguard the Council and ultimately the EU from the consequences of an illiberal presidency? Or is it actually proactive in order to apply pressure on Hungary and maybe then Poland to drop policies that threaten the rule of law? I think it's both. Like, like many of those instruments, when they are used and raised in a situation of 
pathological conditions in the relationship existing between those individual countries and the European Union. There is a moral and legal imperative to step in in order to mitigate the negative consequences stemming on the overall integration of the Union. But there's also this desire to be preventing of further uh, uh, degradation of the attack that those countries are having vis-a-vis -vis the European Union institutional and constitutional integration, the concern, and I think the major rationale for envisaging the possibility of a suspension of the presidency is that Hungary or in the future Poland, those governments running the show at the European level might actually uh, further damage the international reputation and standing of the Union on the external stage, just remind our listeners that at the moment, the, the, the Hungarian position vis-a-vis -vis the Russian invasion of Ukraine is very ambiguous, right? So there is this external dimension. And then there is the internal one, which of course is even more important. What kind of agenda setting uh, those two presidencies, because by the way, Hungary and Poland are supposed to follow one another at the beginning of the new policy cycle will be defining in relation to the next European Commission legislative working program, how much interinstitutional fight might actually occur. And I think this might bring us to uh, absolutely terra incognita. This is going to be an unknown area. What is going to happen if we have a rebellious countries running the presidency and leading, as the European Parliament is saying over the last few days, to an internal tension that might lead the parliament to boycott the daily operation. We're going to get into a situation of institutional impasse that might delay and chronically question the daily operation of the union. And that's something that the rule of law crisis hasn't necessarily affected or led us to. But now all of a sudden, the daily operation, meaning the calendar of the council, uh, all the possible work that happens on a daily basis might be questioned. So this is what is at stake. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree with uh, Alberto. Uh, uh, and, you know, what, what makes this felt different, in my view, from uh, other rule of law files is that the concern is really with the EU setting itself. Uh, uh, you know, uh, if you're talking about budgetary conditionality, you're really worried about what's happening on the ground in Hungary. But here we're seeing that it could spill over in all sorts of ways. Uh, in all, all three of the, the major uh, political institutions, because what's happening is that, uh, as, as I start my, my, my discussion with uh, Oliver, uh, we're talking about a council that has itself set clear rules, uh, uh, which uh, it's very unlikely, given the very fact that the council has been critical of these two countries on at least two fronts, that that, that, that uh, issue of honest broker can be fulfilled. But what is absolutely crucial is to, to see that the, 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 the presidency uh, uh, is also very important uh, uh, as a player for, for its cooperation with the European Parliament and Commission. Let's start with Commission, because that has been uh, not that much in the limelight. But it's absolutely crucial for the guardian of the treaties, for the main uh, uh, engine for uh, giving any sort of proposal, which will be very much happening during the time of the Hungarian presidency and the beginning of the Polish presidency. Every single piece of legislation needs to uh, be uh, given to uh, uh, to both co-legislators. If if the, the presidency of one of the co-legislators is in the hands of uh, uh, of a member state that you typically have very different conversations with, are you going to rely completely? Are you going to be able to rely completely as a commission that uh, uh, that presidency actually conveys your message in the way that you conveyed it uh, to, uh, to to the presidency? It's an open question. Uh, 
for the European Parliament, uh, it's a co-legislator, and specifically during the time of uh, trialogues. So both uh, institutions have taken a position. You will have a negotiation on any file. It's absolutely crucial for uh, for for a council president to to really embody uh, the majority within its own institution before it uh, enters into the uh, in negotiating with the European Parliament. But it's also absolutely crucial that the European Parliament has a reliable partner to actually convey back the message of the negotiation to the council, because otherwise it's, uh, the, the other member states will have no uh, idea what they'll be saying yes or no to. Uh, uh, so it's absolutely reasonable for the European Parliament, if only for good governance and efficiency reasons, quite apart from why you would doubt uh, that at all, to ask for guarantees that what is being verbalized by that member state in the chair uh, is actually uh, a representative uh, of the, the, the majority that's actually currently there in the council. And, uh, you know, if, if there's such huge uh, conflict of interests uh, there and, and, and real tension with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, on, on absolutely crucial files, so we're talking about billions and billions of euros, uh, it's simply unreasonable to, to uh, expect uh, that role to be fulfilled. So that's, uh, that, uh, it, it's a much wider institutional problem than uh, just uh, one of external credibility. We discussed uh, the potential dangers to the functioning of the council of a liberal member state holding the presidency. But do you think there could be unintended consequences if there were a suspension of that presidency, such as Hungary and or Poland, threatening to boycott council votes in the same way that the United Kingdom did in reaction to EU bans on beef exports during the mad cow disease epidemic. There is always unintended consequences, Oliver. Uh, but, you know, frankly, I don't think that uh, Hungary can, cannot be more difficult as a partner in the council than it already is. I mean, it blocks everything uh, uh, that has a, a unanimity. Uh, uh, it has even backtrack on already uh, uh, agreed sanction packages remember about the patriarch uh, that was on the sanction list and that had to be removed from it uh, of course you will always see a tendency to try and link unanimity files to qualified majority files uh, actually the conditionality regulation uh, was a good example of that of course they won't be happy uh, but that uh, that is simply the, the the state we're in where in fact uh, we have intervened much much too late uh, and, and uh, allowed this to happen uh, and, and one of the things that is so surprising about this paper and the proposals that we're discussing which is absolutely baffling to me is that nobody raised it earlier because it was already in the rotational schedule uh, for for a very long time to see that this was coming uh, and and one of the things that we now hear in public debate is uh, you know uh, although it's problematic it's not that problematic because of the the timing of uh, of the hungarian presidency during a sort of a politically dull moment which is a strange argument to make because that actually uh, uh, means that for Poland, which is next uh, on the current rotation, uh, the, the, it's the same or by the same argument, you would say that that is actually even more problematic uh, uh, there. So I don't think that uh, we can avoid kind of that kind of backlash. But it's important that what you need is a two-third majority in the European Council, which is a much more reasonable. We had a two-third majority in the European Council to block uh, funding to uh, to Hungary, right? Uh, and, and, and we're talking about uh, the very same uh, uh, issues. But I would argue that, uh, in fact, there's much, much more at stake for member states itself uh, uh, because uh, all of the, the files that are important to them 
are at stake. And that was less, uh, less the case with this conditionality uh, vote, which is more a vote on principle. Mm. Alberto? Uh, no doubt, uh, not, not taking a stance in these particular circumstances means to basically be an accomplice uh, to, to this presidency. I think this applies to Spain, it applies to, to Belgium, it might apply to um, Cyprus and Denmark to the next round when you look at the trial functioning. So I think this is where we should look at the issue of unintended consequences and then much will depend on the modalities of this altered uh, presidency. Um, are we talking about simply stripping away from Hungary the chairmanship of certain working groups uh, that have some relationship with the rule of law. This might seem a, a compromise that perhaps they're going to be willing to accept. And by the way, this might also have important legal implications in the possibility to challenge that act, right? If Hungary will accept uh, by common accord uh, this rearrangement in the way in which these 18 months are organized, well, this is going to weaken. Instead, if we are talking about a more, uh, let's say, a more radical, a more maximalist uh, way of intervention by two-third majority, as John was saying, well, in that case, obviously, this stance uh, might uh, uh, trigger a more violent response. And we already got a taste of it because in the last few days we heard both uh, the Minister of Justice, Judith Varga, but also the Prime Minister from Poland saying this is nonsense. That's what they use as a word. Showing, um, I would say, an hypersensitivity to the issue, realizing how bad that would be for their international standing and reputation, how they're going to explain this to their own constituency, um, notably in Poland, where elections time is coming up. All this will certainly raise the stake in this in this conversation, but it will also, and sorry for being so positive and I have some difficulties in identifying unintended consequences, also showing that we need to break the impasse of, you know, Article 7, conditionality. I mean, these are instruments we see at play with all the limitations and their potential, but we need to enlarge the perspective and to show how much more leverage different tools that just play on the reputational dimension can also play in making a difference. And that's what I like about this current debate, that is somehow placing our conversation from the traditional conventional tools to more unconventional ones, which are in the treaties, but nobody really thought of or has been willing to, to, to explore. And that's what I, the kind of, um, I think, uh, merit that, that the Myers Committee and, and John Morine uh, work have been bringing. I mean, it's just incredible that in a matter of few days, an idea that has been confined to the academic real has been really moving to center stage where all head of state and government, the commissioners, the MEPs had to take a stance. Are you favorable of a Hungarian presidency? Yes or no? I mean, this is very powerful as, as a dynamic that, that we see play in those dates. So regardless of whether it's going to happen or not, this alone will change the conversation. Well, the Council of the EU is also facing another more proximate challenge with Spanish snap elections in July taking place very soon after that member state assumes the presidency. Do you believe that the time may have come to scrap rotating presidencies in order to ensure that internal events in the member states do not affect the stability of the EU's functioning? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm going to answer in two different ways. I, I used to be a diplomat myself, Oliver. I used to work for the Dutch presidency. Uh, it's tremendously helpful, specifically to a relatively Eurosceptic country like the Netherlands, to have that rotating presidency uh, every uh, 13 and a half years, to actually get Europe on the map uh, internally, to, to uh, 
to really formulate what is it that we want from the European Union, what's, what uh, what we get uh, from it. Uh, so uh, uh, it's also a matter of burden sharing. It's very hard work. You need to recover for six weeks after you uh, do uh, such a tour of duty, I can tell you. So I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And this, but but the, this this fact that it is so energetic also means that there's sort of a permanent uh, impetus of energy into the into the whole um, uh, situation uh, in in politically uh, that that is that drives the European project forward. So I think it's an important engine. So that's one part of that story. Uh, apart, apart from that, I've seen often. And in my four years in Brussels, that uh, governments fell uh, during the presidency, or uh, there was no government at all during the presidency, so it was purely technical, etc. Uh, what's now happening in, in, in uh, with Spain is just a, a sort of a relative coincidence in timing that they uh, the, that uh, in fact uh, early elections were. Uh, are proposed by the by the, the current prime minister who then realized oh i also had to in fact do the presidency and this may actually then uh, hamper the the priorities that i have and it's also the opposition party that thinks so it is being politicized in in, in, in a way I, I think that it is really uh, it's it's a it's a debate of a different nature i wouldn't i wouldn't call into question the whole uh, benefit of rotation uh, our, our paper from my committee was very much focused on if you have any member state, and we're now talking uh, about two in specific, uh, that have such fundamental problems that the very good governance and effectiveness of uh, the chairmanship of one of the institutions uh, is, is under threat, then you should do something about it. But that's something different than if you're a fully democratic country uh, changing governments uh, and doing what democracies do, namely uh, kick out the people that you no longer want and, uh, and elect new ones. But maybe maybe Alberto has different perspectives on it. I, I, I tend to agree that the, the reasons behind uh, this presidency change are very different. So I think these two situations are not comparable. That on the one hand, we're thinking about a pathological situation in the relationship between the government and the EU. So there is an external pressure in saying, hey, let's try to reframe it. In the other way, is a more proactive, voluntary uh, approach in which a given government, given the circumstances, asking to perhaps delay um the, the the speech by by the prime minister because he's not very well placed to say what is going to happen in these six months because most likely he's not going to be in power so in a way it's very humbling uh from that prime minister to say i'm not going to sell a story that i'm not going to be able uh to 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 abide by so very different stories however what they see what i see in common uh, is the fact that this the nature and uh, role that this presidency has changed over time uh is is all of a sudden at stake uh it has become object of politicization either from the outside or from the inside so i think time has come to have a public debate about whether these presidencies should still play a role what kind of role whether they should institutionally in terms of institutional design be be rethought reconsidered by just reminding everybody who is listening to us that in in at the time of the of the conventional treaty then uh, the, the Treaty of Lisbon, uh, we, we simply thought that the creation of a permanent president of the uh, European Council might have replaced the need for a rotating presidency. And most of us coming from, from academia, we assume that the creation of a permanent president would automatically, almost mechanically replace the rotating presidency by simply assuming that this would have created confusion 
uh, at the political level. It would have not created much added value. And therefore, this was the expectation. And then it turns out, and there's a great book, which is an edited volume coming up now, studying the changing role of presidency of the Council of the EU that shows that simply the nature of the existence has changed. And as John was saying, based, based on his own insider perspective, uh, holding the presidency of the Council carries a lot of domestic implications, external implications that really matter and agenda setting matter. That's why we are talking about this. That's why we are considering the suspension for, for Hungary and perhaps Poland. That's why the prime minister in Spain is not considered really ready to do so because these rotating presidents still matter. It probably matters a lot, but it's playing a different role, which is complementary to the role of the chairman of the council played by, in this moment, by, by Charles Michel, a role that might have been interpreted differently, that might be interpreted in the future differently. So this is, you know, is, is, is work in progress. Uh, we don't really have a well-crafted position for what a rotating presidency is. There are guidelines even prepared there at the council, which are fascinating soft law documents saying, hey, that's more or less what you are supposed to do. The Netherlands played a role in raising the bar very high, but we see countries, and perhaps in the future we will see Hungary and Poland, taking a very different stance on what the rotating president is and how they use it internally. So I, I recently brought a chapter in that book looking at the sponsorship issue. So how countries, starting from Ireland, have been using the rotating presidency as an instrument of power vis-a-vis -vis their own constituency. So there was very little European. It was about positioning with their own internal uh, capital system, capitalist system in order to create favor, in order to establish new power dynamics that have very little to do with the European Union. Uh, but they are also part of the story of the presidency. Uh, so we need probably to complexify a little better, you know, what is our understanding of the presidency and what our expectations are. And might, there might be a case for perhaps creating more consistency you know, in how a country should actually exercise the presidency, what it could do and mm. what it shouldn't do uh, in order not to act to ultravirus. Also, because this is a space in which judicial review is, is very limited. So how much other can, countries can actually do and step in. Uh, and I think when John earlier on was saying, well, there are a lot of scenarios we cannot envisage with a rebellious countries running the presidency is absolutely spot on because we don't even have oversight mechanism enabling us to exercise control if something goes wrong. And I think this is an extra argument why we should be more proactive in saying, well, perhaps we need to suspend, we need to alter, because if something goes wrong, we are not really in control. That country will be the public face and the honest broker, supposedly honest broker, in defining the agenda of the union in the interaction with the other institutions. So this is probably the part that scares me the most. For our final question, I thought we could zoom out and reflect more broadly on the rule of law crisis and particularly the impact for democracy. And the other major development we've seen in the last weeks has been the signing by the Polish president of a law establishing a commission to investigate links to Russia, the so-called Lex Tusk, which critics fear will be used to target opposition politicians before elections in Poland in the autumn. Do you think this suggests that contrary to optimism around the impacts of financial conditionality in terms of Hungary and Poland adopting legislation on the judiciary, do you think that this new development might suggest that backsliding regimes will in fact entrench themselves around the time of elections to ensure their survival, thus worsening the crisis? It's an interesting question, Oliver. I hadn't thought about it like that. Uh, my uh, intuition 
is that rather than a contrast, it's, it's actually an extension of the same development. Because mm-hmm. I think that, uh, you know, if, you, if we would have had this interview a year ago, we would have still been talking about how the commission is too slow and bringing too few infringements, right? We're now in a situation where, in fact, it blocks on three different grounds, billions and billions of euros. And I think, uh, I mean, uh, we have often criticized the von der Leyen Commission. It did this excellently. Uh, even if you can have, uh, 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 you know, criticism on the details, I think that they, they were very firm on this. And I think the development that you're now describing in Poland uh, is that the Polish government has not internalized that new reality, that rather than uh, from a position of strength, it is negotiating from a position of weakness. And you can see that position of weakness, uh, uh, that it's still surprised by the enormous backlash uh, any sort of proposal uh, 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 causes not only on the streets in Warsaw, as we saw yesterday, but also from the EU and in the US. It's not a surprise that uh, the the president, uh, within two or three days after signing it, already uh, assigned adaptations to that uh, law. So that's my glass half full uh, 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 reply to it. More generally, I think that it's absolutely crucial what's happening in these elections uh, um, uh, in in October, November in uh, in Poland. uh, you know, part of the reason why the, the Polish government is trying to limit those who have the biggest chances uh, in uh, to, to actually take over uh, uh, power from them is that uh, they're worried uh, that this may actually happen. So that's another sign of weakness. And what I would argue, uh, and this is, has already been done by NGOs like Free Courts, Wilma Sander, also uh, publications about this, is that the Commission should be very proactive in uh, in, in fighting the Lex Tusk, because it has a direct implication uh, for uh, European democracy and also for uh, not only for who can be in the chair in the presidency in uh, in the beginning of 2025, but imagine that you are now a voter, right, in uh, in uh, sitting in uh, in some small town in Poland, uh, and and you will be uh, stripped of your uh, possibility to vote for for uh, uh, for any politician that you like, uh, simply because there's some sort of witch hunt that we're without a, a judicial review in, in place that has clear political purpose. It's clear that the, your right as an EU citizen is directly affected by that. You will not be able to vote for those who you uh, want to vote for, and that's already irrespective from the fact that you're not able to inform yourself properly because much of the state-owned media in Poland is very one-sided. So I think this just uh, uh, shows how interconnected all of these things are. You cannot just focus on the institutionals uh, of judicial independence. You need to also look at budget. You need to look at presidency, but you also need to look at democracy. So I, I would argue that what you're talking uh, about is really, uh, you know, a, a rally cry for having a holistic uh, view of what we're uh, trying to defend, and that democracy is very much a part of that. Yeah, I, I tend to agree that um, PIS feels growing pressure uh, mounting, both internally and externally uh, of, of the union in this Lex uh, task might be seen as a desperate attempt at preventing the opposition from scoring points and putting forward good, credible candidates. They are losing; they are clearly gaining ground. We saw the 
the protest in 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 Poland all over the country that that suggests that something is happening right that that the this the opposition is finally seem kind of uh, revitalized as opposed to to what was happening only a few a few months ago at the same time i would consider uh, the need to contextualize this less lex task within a broader trend at using uh, external interference or external influence as an attempt by governing parties, including at the European Union level, to potentially uh, create extra forms of control uh, that have historically played a lot of negative consequences more than the beneficial ones. I'm referring here to the forthcoming uh, foreign influence directive, also called foreign agents law that the European Union has been preparing. And this is part of the same narrative, is an anti-NGO, anti-civil society narrative that is legally very questionable. First of all, because uh, foreign influence is allowed under public international law. Countries can influence the poli policy process happening in another one as a matter of principle. Uh, and, and we often forget about this. That's what the European Union is doing in the US Congress. That's what the Americans are doing vis-a-vis -vis the European Parliament, the Commission every single day. This does not detract from the need to create some transparency, in particular when it comes to the electoral processes, but how those rules are going to be designed. And in this case, when you look at the Lex task, you clearly see that this foreign interference ghost is simply used as an entry point uh, in order to say we need to go there. You, European Union, are doing the same, so you are not going to be daring to say anything to me. And this will clearly have a political uh, consequence because, as we all know, there is currently a reshuffling of the European political system and the uh, Polish elections will be potentially the most consequential because we are going to be seeing the leading Conservative Party uh, losing potentially uh, control at the time in which the very same European political party, ECR, seem to be engaging with the European political party. So in a way, the ECR of Poland is the EPP of the EU, right? Is the country that is set to lose and it looks desperate for new allies, new creating the conditions for not losing and expanding uh, their own repertoire uh, in order to be able to preserve that position and without having any kind of, uh, let's say, second thought. They are trying all possible ways just to preserve power. That's what I see happening. And um, I'm sure that until the Polish elections outcome will be clear, meaning early uh, 2024, it will be very difficult for the ECR. I remember, remember, remember everybody, you know, chaired by Giorgio Meloni, the current prime minister of Italy, together uh, with PIS to position itself in the future with Vox, also their member in Spain, getting very, very big. So you see that there is a, a current pretty favorable uh, wind uh, supporting some of those countries. And this will play the role in the positioning of the very same countries along the European electoral spectrum ahead of 2024. Well, thank you very much to both of you for this fascinating reflection on dynamics at the supranational level, the national level, and the implications for democracy of these rule of law issues. I'd encourage our listeners to follow RevThem on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and we'll continue to follow these developments as they unfold. Thank you very much again, John and Alberto. Our pleasure. <laughs>